Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So, um, for those who've um, been coming for uh, a while, you know that we went through a whole series of uh, evenings looking at happiness. Uh, and here's this book that uh, I guess somebody has uh, finished and read, and we have this kind of library exchange where we have a number of copies that are going around. Uh, how many people are reading it right now? Just curious. Okay, great. And when you're finished, uh, if you got one from here, just bring it up and it's available for somebody else tonight. So at the end of last week, uh, the last comment uh, was, is Tim here? I think. No. Said, well, you know, happiness is all well and good, but, you know, what about good old suffering? Um, <laughs> we were staying with happiness for a long time, so. I thought I'd honor that request tonight. (laughs) Now notice what happens within you. Oh, we're going to talk about suffering. Uh, Or, oh, finally we're going to get down to talk about suffering. You know, there's no right or wrong, whatever your response is. Just notice it. Uh, And they are related. The Buddha was moved to to teach uh, when he looked around after he became enlightened with his uh, uh, extraordinary powers. And one of the things that he saw was that everyone he saw wanted to be happy and was going around, for the most part, doing the very things that were causing more suffering to them. And he said, it's the not seeing of suffering that is really our problem. So I wanted to take a look at this question of suffering, uh, particularly by referring to one discourse that's not so well known. It's a somewhat esoteric discourse, but it's a very profound discourse called the Upanisa Sutta, and it's uh, also called the Discourse on Supporting Conditions, particularly um, the phrase that sometimes describes the teaching of this discourse is, um, seems somewhat daunting and pithy. Um, it is called the Teaching on Transcendental Dependent arising. Have you thought about that today? (laughs) And you might say, oh my goodness, am I going to follow this? Well, let's hope so. (laughs) It's very profound, and it's not all that um, hard to follow. Uh, And I I want to um, acknowledge a, um, a little booklet with that title, Transcendental Dependent Arising, uh, put together by Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is the, uh, the brilliant scholar who put together the whole um, Maji Manakaya, that big, thick book that I bring in from time to time, uh, the middle-length uh, discourses by the Buddha. He's really 
the finest scholar in uh, of the Pali canon in the uh, alive today, that to my knowledge, in the uh, who's who speaks English, who translates in English. Uh, I read this a number of years ago. I, I think actually I, well I know, I gave a talk on this maybe, you know, six or eight years ago, but things have recycled so much there might be one or two people that are still here, but, and you've probably not remembered every detail, so I'll, <laughs> I'll go around again. Uh, it was a very profound teaching for me. The, um, the discourse actually um, is a, a variation on one very profound teaching of the Buddha, which perhaps you've heard of, called um, the Wheel of Dependent Origination, or as it's sometimes referred to, Dependent Co-Arising, which essentially says, because of this, this arises. The dependent origination has 12 links of causality that describe the, the wheel of samsara. And I won't go into them in detail tonight. I think I, perhaps I'll do that next week or uh, in the near future, because it, it the, it's the heart of what he discovered under the Bodhi tree, dependent origination, how we are on this wheel uh, and never uh, to get off until we become um, awakened. And I'll, I'll just go over the steps uh, and don't worry about it. There's not going to be a quiz. And uh, we'll, we, like I say, we won't get into detail tonight, but just so you get a sense of this, because this is leading to this other uh, profound list. Because of ignorance... Um, karm karmic formations arise or there is volitional action because of ignorance and these volitional actions or karmic formations usually have to do with um, greed, hatred, and delusion. Because of karmic form formations, consciousness arises. Because of consciousness, form, mind, and body arise, come into being. Because of body and mind coming into being, uh, there are sense organs that can perceive the world. Because of sense organs, the six sense doors, there is, and consciousness that, that is there with them, contact impinges on the senses, like you hear that sound. That is called contact at the sense door. Because of contact, feeling arises of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Because of feeling, often craving arises. We want the pleasant or we don't want the unpleasant. Because of craving, clinging or grasping arises becomes solidified. Because of this grasping or attachment or clinging, all synonymous, um, becoming arises or existence, what is what's in this treatise called existence, often called becoming arises. Because of becoming this, um, um, what can we say, a kind of 
um, process that, that is put into motion, birth arises in each moment as well as a new lifetime. Because of birth, then the last of these twelve, old age, sickness, and death arise. And then you are, and because of that, usually when there's not clarity, it gives rise to ignorance, and you just go around and around and around. Okay, don't worry if that seemed a bit too out there, heady. Okay, because what is about what I, the the main part of the treatise is not not as dense um, in this particular discourse, that last of the links, which is usually translated as um, birth, uh, uh, as old age and death, is translated as suffering. Just all of those things, old age, sickness, and death, is lumped into the category of suffering. Because of birth, suffering arises. And then he says something quite extraordinary. He says that suffering, because of suffering, there is a whole other possibility that is available that leads to one's real awakening. And that starts on another list. Because of suffering, he says, faith can arise. And this starts this transcendental order where you're transcending samsara into liberation. Because of faith, joy arises. And now he's talking about finer development of um, concentration and, and very uh, uh, deep states of meditation. Because of joy, rapture arises. Because of rapture, tranquility arises. Because of tranquility, happiness arises. Because of happiness, deep concentration arises. Because of concentration, knowledge and vision of things as they really are arise. Because of that, disenchantment arises. You kind of say, ooh, who wants that? When you see things as they are. Because of disenchantment, Dispassion arises. Because of dispassion, liberation arises. And because of liberation, knowledge of the destruction of defilements arises. The uprooting of defilements arises. Now again, you don't have to uh, go into, we won't go into detail on all of those. Um, basically, the idea is once we're headed in a direction of great faith, because we see how things really are, the possibility of freedom exists. And the, the link that I want to focus on, particularly this evening, since it was raised last week after nine weeks of happiness, is this statement because of suffering, faith arises. That suffering is the supportive condition for faith. 
Okay, you with me so far? Suffering is, as most all of us know, the first noble truth of the Buddha. It's the first thing that he taught. And as he understood, when we can truly um, be wise and come to terms with suffering, there is then the possibility of the end of suffering, of true happiness and freedom. Suffering, as probably a number of people here can attest to, is quite commonly the motivation for embarking on the spiritual journey, on a quest for awakening. If everything was hunky-dory, we probably would be busy just enjoying our lives. And in fact, if you know the, 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 uh, the story of the life of the Buddha, as many of you do, he spent the first 29 years of his life in complete luxury, never even questioning another way until he went on his unannounced journey and saw those heavenly messengers of old age, sickness, and death and said, whoa, what's really going on here? And that was the motivation for him to start his quest. Also, it's said, as we've mentioned from time to time, that the heaven realms, the Brahma realms, if you relate to those things, that the heaven realms are not as good a place to come to awakening as the human realm, because in the heaven realms there's mainly just enjoyment, and there's not that fire that's lit under us to see what is going on, whereas the human realm has just the right balance of um, pain and pleasure, of suffering and joy, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, that makes us um, want to investigate what is really going on. Some of us, not a whole lot, but some of us. And if there was too much suffering or pain, it would be um, too uh, debilitating and um, um, confusing and negative for us to, uh, to have the, the upliftment for our journey. So this is supposed to be the best plane to do that. That being so, for most of us, for most people in the world, suffering does not give rise to faith. Often, suffering gives rise to caution, or fear, or denial, or contraction or bitterness. So it's not a guarantee, oh, I'll just get in touch with some suffering and then I'll, you know, lead to faith. Now it's also so that you don't have to be, you know, a Buddhist or a student of, of the Dharma to use that suffering as a wake-up call. And as, as we, uh, we read in here, one of the nine choices they call recasting, where you transform your suffering into some deep understanding. So it's, it's possible 
that that happens even without Dharma practice. But mostly when people encounter suffering, it's not, um, it doesn't lead to an upliftment, an upliftment. Sometimes it can shake us up so that it can um, get us out of our sleepwalking mode. But as we all know, the, the bitterness and the suffering that many people experience gets passed on to others. And that's the, the classic uh, pattern of abuse. Ninety, I think 90% is conservative percent of people who cause abuse were abused. So there is a legacy of, of suffering that can get passed on often. How can suffering be a rise, uh, a supporting condition for faith? This goes against the grain, so to speak. Well, as I said, suffering can wake us up. And perhaps if you can think of something in your life where you somehow had a wake-up call, some kind of trauma or tragedy, where your whole understanding of how things are put together is shaken so that you start to question, what is it all about? What is life all about? And you uh, temporarily are um, woken from your sleep. That suffering for some people makes us realize that the world is not as predictable as we thought. And all our security or uh, attempted control that comes from having a plan and having expectations can get blown out of the water when we hear some news or get a diagnosis or something earth-shattering happens. I remember a couple of years ago, as many of you know, I had this, uh, these problems with my eyes and this one uh, moment that I heard that I, there was a very good chance that I could go blind and I had to get on the next plane back for this emergency surgery. And I remember that ride back, I've mentioned that ride back to the retreat, I was down in Southern California, just getting a whole new level of possibility. It wasn't just a thought, oh yeah, that might, that might happen to me sometime. It was this very well can happen. It will happen if you're not lucky. Okay. That was a whole other dimension of uh, a dose of reality. Can you think, we probably all of us can think of something like that. Oh, there is no security. Like, like uh, Alan Watts says, the wisdom of insecurity. But it's not just encountering the suffering that will guarantee our um, development of faith inside. 
It's not just that we see that there's a constant liability or unpredictability of life. That's one, that's one um, definition of the word dukkha, which is what suffering is usually translated as unreliability or unsatisfactoriness, dukkha. It's not just that encounter and seeing that it's so, but we need to truly understand suffering, to come to terms with it, to reflect on it, to deeply penetrate it in order for there to be a rising of faith. If there is not that deep understanding, the two most common responses are fleeing, escape, or avoidance, or somehow seeking pleasure to distract ourselves, or on a more positive note, but still not one that leads to freedom, there is a kind of enduring. There is a patience and a courage and a resignation. Yes, this is part of life. That's not quite in denial, but does not lead to something that we can call faith and that journey to awakening to the truth. With either of those, awakening is not possible. There's a, a saying, not seeing dukkha is dukkha. Not seeing suffering, not seeing the pain of the world is suffering. And it's that for two reasons. One, there's no relief in not directly coming to terms with it because we're too busy trying to avoid or somehow bargain. And there's not the possibility of wisely growing in the face of this suffering. In fact, one interesting point mentioned uh, from time to time, but it, it uh, bears repeating, it's always fascinated me since I've heard it, that when we do something that's unskillful, it's, from a karmic standpoint, it's better to know that you're doing something stupid and hurtful than to plead ignorance. You might think, well, gee, that's, you know, that doesn't make sense. I remember the first time I heard that, that didn't make sense to me. Well, God, I didn't know any better, you know. So. But from a karmic standpoint, ignorance is not bliss because ignorance just perpetuates the likelihood that you will do that in the future. Whereas if you see it, even a glimpse, and you see you've, do, you've done something dumb, and you think you ignore it, there's a place in you that knows better. And it's planting a seed, and, it's, and maybe there's that possibility of it ripening and saying, God, I've done this. 15 times before, and every time it really bummed me out afterwards, you know, somewhere along the line, say, oh, maybe I want to try it a different way. But the not seeing that suffering is suffering. 
what can we understand about suffering? One thing that's essential to understand is that the source of most of our suffering is not outside of ourselves, but it's right here in us. Now this is different, say, than um, cruelty and hurt that happens to us from outside and pain that happens to us from outside, actual out-and-out -out physical pain. But rather, our relationship, our attitudes that we handle our experience, this is where most of our suffering comes from, and the, the ones that the Buddha addressed. So, when we see that this is where the suffering resides, or the source of it resides, then that also means that the possibility of ending of suffering is within here too. That we don't have to wait until it stops out there. You know, in, uh, in this book, one of the nine choices that the authors found were common to all these happy people was what they called accountability, where you weren't blaming the outside world for your problems, where you weren't at the mercy, you weren't a victim, but you saw the possibility of making a change. Whereas um, Christmas Humphreys says, this writer on Buddhism, one of my favorite lines, he says, uh, the one miracle this path has to offer is a change of heart. It's our attitude that determines everything. So, it's understanding that the source of suffering is within us. And also, it's seeing that our own pain and suffering is not unique to us, that it is universal. When you have that understanding, you're not taking it things so personally. And there's also um, the opening up to the understanding of the predicament that we all share and the possibility of um, connecting with everyone around us. It's a tremendous relief. It, countless times on, uh, on retreat or in interviews when, when people come in and they, they talk about their problems and their own pains and there's a great shame that they have about it. You know, well, I know you've had 10 interviews today, but now you're going to come into something, you know, that, that might be too much for you to hear. You know, that's what often there goes on in their hearts. And, you know, three people, the last three people have said practically the same thing as, as, as that person. All the time it happens. Your pain and your fear and your sadness and your loneliness and your unskillful actions, not so different from the next person's. They just feel unique to you. And when there's that understanding, oh, this is part of this predicament that we all share, is a tremendous sense of relief. In order for suffering to lead to faith, as this list unfolds, two things are needed. One is 
an understanding, an awareness of suffering, as they've been saying. And a second is uh, an encounter with a teaching that leads to liberation, that points out the possibility of the end of suffering. And that is, you know, in this um, tradition, hearing the Dharma, hearing the Buddhist teachings, it's not um, exclusively uh, a rite of this teaching. People studied with Ramana Maharshi or Ramakrishna or many great saints outside of the Buddhist tradition and have become free. So I don't want to say this is the only way. This is one very clear way. This is what the Buddha taught. The possibility of freedom. And that's an essential seems to be an essential ingredient for suffering giving rise to faith. You see the possibility. Do you remember when you first heard there was a possibility? I remember very clearly, and I've mentioned this also from time to time, first time hearing the teachings, being pretty messed up inside, pretty confused, neurotic and proud of it, you know. <laughs> Doomed, I thought, to be neurotic, you know, and wearing it as a kind of badge of complexity because that was the only badge I knew, you know. And hearing the teachings that said, there is a way out. And I, I remember, it took me a, a little while, you know, not too long a while, just part of one talk. You know, and the per Joseph, who was taught, who was embodying it so, I just thought, God, this guy knows something, and I want to know. Could it be? Could it be that I'm, I'm not going to be doomed to be a slave to my neuroses. And as I heard more and more, I got more and more excited over the course of those, those days and weeks. I was flying high because I was, because it was such a, a new revelation, possibility. Oh my goodness. Do you remember? Remember. What, what an amazing moment that is to encounter a teaching that says, wait, there really is another way. It's not just about things that you'd read in a book. And when you can encounter a teaching like that and be inspired by it, then you can find some refuge in it. And this is one of the, the gifts of these teachings, the three refuges that are spoken about, the triple gem, it's not an accident that they're spoken of as jewels because they are the source of a lot of faith that a lot of people have. Refuge in the Buddha 
You know, we say at the end of the, the uh, sitting, for those who haven't been here before or wonder about that chanting, you know, that's, those are the chanting of the three refuges three times. Taking refuge in the Buddha, which on the one hand is being inspired by the, the example of the historical Buddha, this guy really did it. I don't know if, if you have that feeling when I first encountered the teachings and I'd start to see Buddha statues everywhere with that, that smile, that half smile. Something over the centuries seemed to be coming through that, that made me just trust. You know, could this be one huge deception that people are fooling themselves in? I don't think so. You know? This guy really found something. So taking refuge in that example, but even more so taking refuge in the fact that you have that capacity. That's truly what taking refuge in the Buddha means, that you have the potential to awaken. That's why he taught. And taking refuge in the Dharma, in the body of teachings that the Buddha presented, but even more fundamentally, in the truth of things as they are, that when you surrender to the truth and really see carefully, look closely at the truth, life is inviting us to discover it and awaken. And that's where peace is to be found, in the truth, our love of the truth. And taking refuge in the Sangha um, it actually means taking refuge in the people who for centuries have walked this path and have become free like the Buddha. You're taking refuge in the fact that there has been a lineage of humans over the centuries that have actually done what, what he did as well as taking refuge in the community that's created of like-minded friends as we come here and, and share these, these values and principles. So, in order for suffering to lead to faith, an awareness of suffering, an understanding of how it works, and an encounter with a teaching that says, yeah, there's another possibility. Faith is not blind faith, we've often talked about that, that it's not a faith that comes from um, blindly surrendering, but a faith that is accompanied by a careful investigation as the, as the Buddha open-handedly held out the invitation, see for yourself, come and see for yourself. In fact, faith is sometimes likened to a hand in this, this whole list, faith leading to joy, etc., rapture. Faith is a hand because faith is needed to take hold of the teachings, to take hold of beneficial practices and put them into action. You need to have some kind of faith. It's the first of the um, spiritual faculties that starts us on this trip. Faith, another list, faith leading to 
effort, leading to mindfulness, leading to concentration, leading to wisdom. And faith is also uh, spoken of as a seed because um, it is, uh, it's the vitalizing germ, it's just the, the beginning, the germ that will germinate uh, into growth of higher development. It all starts with that quality of faith. I'll just mention a, a few words about, about faith more. There's an intellectual component to it that is before we actually experience what we read or hear, there's some kind of trust that it is so. You know, like that trust perhaps when you see a Buddha statue. Even though you don't know yet for yourself, there's something that makes sense about it, that you're willing to take the next step. Faith also has an emotional component to it that is a feeling of confidence or joy or enthusiasm, sometimes devotion, that connects us to our heart and enlivens our spirit. And it also has a, um, an intention component that as we feel this faith or we see the possibility, there's a readiness to, uh, to implement the teachings, to, uh, to take action, and having the conviction that they'll lead to a particular goal or vision. So this faith has its source in suffering. Isn't that wonderful? That means that no suffering need be wasted. <laughs> that means that when you have something really awful happening to you, which I wouldn't wish on anybody, when you do have something really hard going on, if you see it, as a possible springboard to deeper understanding. That suffering, as is often said, suffering deepens compassion. Suffering is what deepens compassion. Then that makes it worthwhile. And if we can, can see that suffering is not only giving rise to our own faith, but to compassion for others, and that if we wisely process it, then experiencing our own suffering can have the intention of relieving suffering of everyone we know. And that brings a whole inspiring dimension to the sorrows that we go through. I was with somebody this week who is um, who's dying, actually. And uh, about four months or so, she was on a retreat. She didn't know yet how it was going to go. But she was in 
actually lots of emotional pain and bitterness because of some things that had gone wrong um, in some operations and some other things that, that happened to her. And she was wanting so much to be out of her pain, but didn't know how. And through that retreat, through her own sincerity and her getting clear on her intention to use it wisely, this situation, and her intention as she got in touch with it to be happy, something quite amazing happened. Uh, through that retreat, and then another re retreat which she did a couple of, uh, a month or so later, and some work that, um, that she did um, talking about it. And she was ready. She was more than ready. And I just saw her this week. I hadn't seen her in uh, a couple of months. And she found out that, in fact, she was dying. She got the diagnosis. And um, she let people know, and people from all around uh, came. She thought, actually, she had a very limited time to, to live. And people came and celebrated their, her life w with her. And as it turns out, she, she had more time. She still has a bit of time. And she said, you know, it's, uh, well, the big party is over, but now it's kind of individual, kind of one-on-ones. And, and she, she was beaming. She said, I never knew that I could have this peace inside. I was getting a kind of, um, as we used to call it, contact high, just being around her. You know, she just, she had this sense of real ease and strength and inner strength. And I said, wow, you know, this is just amazing, you know. On one hand, it wasn't amazing. But on another, it was so remarkable to see the transformation. And she said, I'm ready to go, you know. I've been ready to go for a while. And, um, and now I just want to use my time wisely. And, and, she, and, and there would be tears coming through most, most of her words. She said, I'm so open now that, you know, I'm crying all the time, but it feels so good, you know, because she had been so uh, armored before. Suffering deepens compassion. Suffering gives rise to faith and an open heart. Suffering actually can lead to happiness. So, I think I'll stop here and uh, See if there's any comments, any things that you want to share that come from the talk. Yeah. So, pass the talking stick and <coughs> say your name um, and then talk right into it. Put it right close up to your lips. Hi. <laughs> My name is Sumaya. Um, I've experienced this, and I always thought it was the most remarkable thing. Um, I remember one time I, I was recovering from a surgery, and I was experiencing so much pain. And it felt like the, that my pain melted into like this universal pain. 
and then it just flipped over into ecstasy. Mm -hmm. And then another time it happened to me when I had I was on top of a mountain and doing a crevasse rescue and I stuck a new ice axe in my knee. <laughs> and you know, I looked down and my knee was open and my pants were ripped and the person with me said, sit down, you know. And I sat there on this little blanket and it was like, I just, I gave into it and I was like a little child and I was just in bliss. So in the oddest situations, this can happen. Mm -hmm. yeah. I guess it's a blessing, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Anybody else have a, an experience of suffering having a, a transforming quality for them or any quality? Yeah, behind you, Samara. Well, my name's John. Um, before I uh, found Buddha Dharma here, I was uh, active in 12-step groups for a number of years. And to me, that was just the wonderful experience of hearing my own pain reflected in all the other stories you hear in a 12-step group. And you just, open, you know, it becomes real clear, uh, or it became very clear to me anyway, that uh, my pain was no different than everybody else's pain in the room. And um, my ex first experience of Buddha Dharma was a um, day long that you and Jack led many years ago. And I don't remember the teachings at all. I remember the practice. Just transformed my life. Thank you. Anybody else ever have any suffering? <laughs> <coughs> have something, uh, actually it's a burning question, and I was trying to uh, fit it into this <laughs> category of suffering. Um, it's, it's subtle, but it's um, clearly suffering. Um, it has to do with um, lies by omission. A week or two ago you talked about honesty. And then we have right speech, which says you don't say anything that isn't honest, kind, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, that leaves me with um, sometimes uh, knowing I should say something, or I should find some way to say something and saying, t telling myself that I really can't find a kind way to say this, so I won't say it. And it becomes kind of a lie by omission, which in a sense is dishonest. Um, and I can kind of skim over it sometimes, but there, there's some suffering there. Um, 
it's a, the dilemma, if you see that. So when you say that um, you can't say it with kindness, what, what would saying it with kindness mean to you? In a, a soft, non-angry voice. Not necessarily. Mm-hmm. That might be a thought that you're um, that you're imposing. That's extra. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When I say kindness, when I hear kindness, you know, saying it with kindness, you know, that would be the ideal to say it. You know, <coughs> sweet and kind, and you know, sounds kind of syrupy at, mm-hmm. at times. And when it's possible, that's great. You certainly will be more effectively heard. But when I hear kindness, I think about intention. What is my intention here? You know, is it to you know, put somebody down or dump my anger on them? Or is it because, um, because there's something that doesn't feel right, that I feel a disconnection, or I feel that anger and I don't want to feel that anger. I want to somehow get some greater clarification or, or clarity. And you can be very firm and clear, just like with a child. You know, that's like the ultimate example. You, know, you can tell a, a child, no, you know, like, like we are with my son, you know, no, bedtime is such and such, not such and such, you know. And there can be very tough conversations about that. You know, now if we say, you know, oh, Adam, please go to bed, it's time. It just won't work, you know. <laughs> but we say, this is the way it is, you know, we love you. This needs to happen in order for this to happen. It's just coming from a di- from that kind place, although it can come out very, very firm, sometimes even fierce. So, you know, don't get tripped up on that word and what it means to you. Explore it a bit, a bit more. Thank you. Okay. So uh, we should close with some loving kindness. Okay, so going inside, just feel your heart center and let that area soften and relax as you breathe. Breathe in through that center any loving or benevolent energy that you might feel from life around you. And you fill your whole being with that energy. And then extend it outwards, surround yourself, and extend it outwards in a gesture of generosity as you breathe out.
and then sending some kind thoughts to yourself. Just acknowledge that somehow you've had the grace or good fortune to change some difficulty or sufferings in your life in the direction of greater understanding and compassion. It's really extraordinarily good karma. You deserve to be happy. And send that to yourself. May I have happiness in my life. May I have peace in my heart. May the sorrows and sufferings I encounter be a source of greater compassion and understanding. May I express my love well. And now, extending outward from your own heart to include everyone here, and out and out to include all beings in all directions, all over the planet. As I want happiness, may all be happy. As I want peace, may all beings be peaceful. May all beings use their suffering to deepen compassion and understanding. May all beings be touched by the power of loving-kindness. May all beings everywhere be happy. Thank you for your attention. See you next week. This talk was given by James Barris at Berkeley Sitting Group on September 2, 1999. It is an offering of the Dharma.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.